The fact it's open source is not an accident. Building a database takes, I don't know, five to 10 years. And I don't want to work on something for five years and then have like, you know, some corporate effort change. And then like your five years of code just goes in the trash can. This is Contributor, a podcast telling the stories behind the best open source projects and the communities that make them. I'm Eric Anderson. We are live today with the majority of the creators of Presto. I have with me Martin Traverso, Dane Sundstrom, and David Phillips. Uh, great to have you on the show with us today. These three represent three of the four original creators of Presto Project that came out of Facebook. And we're going to dive into how that came about. And this is also the first time we've had multiple people on the show at the same time. So this will be a bit of an adventure for us. Maybe so that everyone can become familiar with your voice, the three of you could each name and introduce yourself. Right. I can start. This is Martin. As Eric mentioned, one of the creators of Presto. Been working with Dane and David on Presto for the last almost eight years now. And before that, uh, we worked at a couple of companies together. We met back in 2009 when we were at uh, Ning working together. And this is Dane Sundstrom, also one of the creators of Presto. Really happy to be here. And this is David Phillips, also one of the creators of Presto. Great. And I want to start out with, you have this amazing story. All of you have worked together through so many companies. Maybe you can talk about how each of you first met. I feel like that's kind of the beginning of Presto in some degree. Right. So back in 2009, I was working at Ning. Uh, Dane and David joined uh, Ning. We worked together. We overlapped for, I mean, at least I overlapped with them for a couple months when we were there. Dan and David continued to work at Nint for a while. I went to work at another company. When they left, they came over and joined that company I was working at. And we worked together for about two years there, got to know each other really well. And then at some point, we decided to leave that company. We basically got hired by Facebook. And since we got along together so well and we were interested in the same things, we said, okay, let's Let's go do something together. Let's work on the same team together. So we, we kind of managed that after we joined Facebook. And we all had the idea of doing something around databases and data analytics and warehousing at some point. So that was kind of the great opportunity to start something when we're at Facebook. How many people were at Ning? Did the three or four of you kind of find each other and instantly click? Or I'm sure there was a lot of other people to become friends with at Ning. So Ning was not really a huge company when we joined. It grew a bit after that, but engineering was like 35 maybe. And I mean, Martine interviewed me and gave me probably the hardest tech interview I've ever had. And uh, he's very, very knowledgeable about Java and computing. And that impressed me. And I think I did pretty well, and we've been working together pretty much since, I think. Awesome. And David, how did you first meet the group? Same. Uh, we were working together at Ning. I didn't really interact much with Martin. Uh, he was like the chief architect at the time, and I just joined as an engineer. Probably the biggest thing I interacted with him on was uh, he gave like an overview of the entire platform like as he was leaving to explain how everything worked. And I think he it was like a two-day presentation. And he printed up like a graph of how all the components fit together on like 50 pieces of paper and taped it onto a wall. So that was kind of funny. <laughs> Martin, you, <laughs> you leave a, quite an impression on people, it sounds like. <laughs> 
I don't even know what a two day presentation means. Um, and, and a 50 paper sheet, they have computers now you can put things on the screen. I'm just kidding. That's fantastic. Okay. So Martin impressed everyone and kind of has these engineers gravitating towards him. And then you left Ning as a group or individually and somehow made your way to Proofpoint? I left first, April 2009. And, and Dana and David continued to work at Ning for a while. David, uh, maybe you can jump in there, Dana and David, talk a bit about that. Yeah, David and I worked together on a bunch of projects at Ning. The biggest one was we actually built a data warehouse using Natiza, uh, which David had used at a bunch of other companies. It's a excellent product. Um, so we worked on a bunch of stuff. And then when I left, Martin recruited me to Proofpoint. And then I recruited David and we all ended up there together. Again, working on leading the architecture of uh, new Proofpoint applications. But not necessarily databases at Proofpoint, correct? Not so much. Got it. So the band's back together and you're not necessarily working on databases, just anything. And at some point, you tire of Proofpoint and head to Facebook? Right. We knew people at Facebook at the time. We, The guy running uh, engineer at Facebook, Jay Parekh, was my manager at Ning. So I knew him pretty well. We had a bunch of people we worked with at Ning that had gone to Facebook. So they were all trying to recruit us. So it was kind of the, the right moment to join the company. So, I mean... Yeah, it was kind of a good timing, good opportunity, and it was it was very convincing at the time. It was as they told us, there were so many projects, so many interesting things to do at Facebook, and yeah, it, it, it certainly was. The company was growing significantly. There were a lot of technical challenges. In particular, one of the things they talked about was some of the needs they had in the data infrastructure uh, organization, and. This is something that, I mean, Dana and David had worked with data warehouses in the past. They had a lot of experience with that. Dana and David, maybe you can talk about it, about how you were, before that, you were, you had always been talking about how you wanted to build something yourselves. So I've been involved in data warehousing for probably 15 years. Always been working in the internet space. In the internet space, you tend to have a lot of data that you need to store and analyze. And uh, like back in the mid 2000s, like there wasn't a lot of options. Like Hadoop didn't exist. There were commercial systems like Natiza that Dane mentioned. And like the Natiza was actually pretty awesome. It was like distributed database built on top of Postgres that came as an appliance. So it was really like a single rack. They would just drop it in your data center, plug it in, and it would just work. And that always kind of like set the bar for like how easy a product should be to use and how like quickly you can get started with it. I think also we used Hadoop and MapReduce and custom stuff in the early days of Hadoop. And like in comparison to something like Matiza or the other commercial products, it was really frustrating, really hard to work with, slow and like slow for no reason. Like you play with it and you're like, this thing could be orders of magnitude faster if someone just paid attention to it. So our experience with that made us want to go and like work on some of these tools, but like, you know, we didn't really have the opportunity until we were at Facebook. And Facebook at the time was relatively small. We joined just before the IPO. And so there were opportunities where you could just go and form a team and do something really significant. Nowadays, you know, it's kind of everything that needs to be done is being done by someone. So it was a kind of a different day. Yeah, there's a lot of white space, greenfield, whatever you want to call it, where you could you could tackling new projects. And and you kind of self-selected, opted in, kind of came up with this idea on your own, it sounds like. Was there a need at Facebook? 
you know, what was your first use case? What was the, um, yeah. Yeah, there was certainly a need. I mean, this was, like I say, it's a kind of right opportunity at the right time. It was the opportunity to do something that we had been wanting to do at a company that actually needed exactly that. At the time, Facebook was using Hive for uh, mo- most of the data analytics. Hive came out of Facebook, actually. They created it in 2008. They open sourced it. They made an Apache project. And it was heavily used for all the, the data transformation, data analytics. People were using it for interactive analytics, too. Or they tried to use it for interactive analytics, basically. They would run a query and then maybe wait an hour, two hours for the results to come back, which, as Dane was saying, that seemed ridiculous. Like We thought that could be done much, much faster. And when we set out to do that, we said, okay, we can do something around this. There was a system that came out of a hackathon at Facebook that attempted to do something like that. The system wasn't being maintained. Uh, it wasn't scaling beyond limits it had, and the architecture wasn't amenable to making it scale beyond what it needed to scale and to be able to add the features that need to be added. So we said, okay, let's look at it with fresh eyes. And we we started like doing something from the ground up. So that's how Presto was born, basically. I was going to say, we were pretty lucky in that we showed up right when this other system was falling over and dying. The existing system wasn't easy to support and the people that supported it had left. And so there was like this, someone had already shown like, hey, something can work in this space. We showed up, we had the credibility, but then we also had the right people. Like Martine has a lot of experience in languages and distributed computing. I also have experience in distributed computing along with David. We're also all Java experts and like the whole Hadoop ecosystems in Java, switching to another language would have slowed everything down in the beginning. And we just had like really good people. We had people who had, you know, I I have a lot of experience in open source. So we just got, I think, really lucky, like right time, right problem, the needs, the opportunity. Facebook's always had the philosophy of building it themselves and owning the entire engineering stack. Like they build their own servers, they build their own networking equipment, they have a bunch of people working on the Linux kernel. Like, so at most companies, like the idea of building a database would be crazy. But like at Facebook, that was kind of par for the course. And was it clear this would be open source from the outset? Or how was that decision reason? <laughs> yeah, it, it was to us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, no, we, we started a project then. When we were talking to Jay Parekh, we said, hey, we want to make this open source. So he was on board with that. Uh, that was around the time when Facebook was working on open compute. And he was saying that, yeah, the open compute, if you look at it, it ended up disrupting the hardware industry. And we want to do the same thing for the data analytics industry. So he was on board with that. It's something that we wanted to do from the beginning, like make it open source, because we had worked with open source projects. We believe that the most successful projects are those that are open source. Getting other people and other companies involved in the project makes for a healthier project in terms of you end up not just building something that satisfies one the needs from one company, but from everyone else. And, and in turn, you end up benefiting from that. So yeah, that was something we, we kind of said from the beginning, we're going to do it this way. We're going to make it open source. If you go look at the history of the project, the first commit was on GitHub. So we use GitHub, we use all the all the tools we, we would eventually use when we open source it. It took us a year to open source it, but that was kind of the idea from the beginning. 
the fact it's open source is not an accident. Like we looked at this project and we're like, building a database takes, I don't know, five to 10 years. And none of us, well, especially I'll speak for myself. I, I don't want to work on something for five years and then have like, you know, some corporate effort change. And then like your five years of code just goes in the trash can. I've seen that way too many times. And in addition to like wanting to get input from outside people and wanting to get more help, we wanted to make something that was going to have longevity. That was like our initial model was like, we want to build Postgres, but for analytics and have it be open and free and have lots of people involved in it and go in that sort of direction of a really big project. And from like day one, we very carefully designed the project. Like we did everything on GitHub, every issues on GitHub, the pull requests are on GitHub, all the reviews are public, which is pretty different than how a lot of companies do open source. Um, like Facebook does open source today. Like we do everything. We did everything publicly and we insisted everyone on the team do everything publicly, which is a pretty big change, but then it makes the project more open and brings in people and they don't feel like you have a special place because this group of people at one company founded the project. They're not treated special. Like everyone's code goes through the same process and you can see it because it's all in public. So we designed it so that it was this big open thing and that everyone could see it and feel like they're an equal member. That's amazing. Tell us about that year of closed source to, I mean, I guess it's, it's you're, you're on GitHub, you're using the open source tools, but if I understand it right, you know, you haven't made this public yet for the first year. Was there a milestone you reached before you felt comfortable doing so? Or Well, I mean, we started the project in August, 2012. It took us about six months to go to production. I think it was beginning of 2013, the first time we opened it up to for internal users. So of course, we weren't going to open source it before then because we had nothing to open source, really. It was just a bunch of prototype code and, and, and trying things out. We actually thought that, I mean, we wanted to open source something that was going to be usable for people. So having something that is kind of vaporware wasn't uh, ideal either. So we kind of spent that entire year building Presto, making it work for internal use case. And when, when it was proven that it was actually useful, it was something something behind it. Like there was a future to it. Then we said, okay, this is time to open source it. We also had to work on cleaning up documentation, a bunch of other things to make it more appealing to people that weren't immediately familiar with the code base. Yeah, I was going to say that it, it isn't as, you get to a point where you're just like, I'd like to open source this, but you don't just turn around and open up the repo. And maybe David can speak to some of the work. I know he spent a really long time on making the thing work well for the open source community. Yeah. So what we did in the first year was get it working really well at Facebook. And that system that we talked about that we had to replace, there were about 20,000 reports currently using that old system that we had to migrate onto Presto. And uh, we actually implemented a ton of features in Presto that as a consequence that those reports needed. And so like having that, those concrete use cases really drove, it gave us specific things to work on instead of just kind of like adding random features. And then we knew that a distributed system is really hard to install and get running. And especially like if you look at like the Hadoop stuff, like Hadoop, especially back in those days, was like crazy complicated to install and could take you like days and you'd have to be doing a bunch of searching and reading documents. So we said people have like, five minutes 
that they're going to spend on this. So like, how do we make sure that people are successful on their first try? And so I, I wrote documentation, how to install it. And as I was documenting it, I would find things that were just like really hard to explain or just seemed weird. And we said, okay, go fix the code so that I don't have to document this step. So it was probably like at least a month of like iterating on like writing the documentation, figuring out what parts sucked, fixing those, fixing the documentation. And at the end of it, like we had a system that worked really well. And surprisingly, I don't think we had any questions about how to install it in the first few weeks. Like people actually could download it and get it running, which was a, a pretty big change. As I say, the, the measure of success is when people don't ask you about that and they start asking about like the next level. But the other measure of success was that there are a bunch of like competing products in the space. And one of the most common responses we got was, hey, I wanted to use this other product, but I gave up because I couldn't get it installed after four days and like, you know, over a weekend, you know, or actually I came in on a Saturday and in, you know, an hour I had your stuff up and running in our production environment. And so one of the biggest things you can do as an open source project is make the thing dirt simple to install, like just remove everything that's complex, you know, as much as possible. That's a great story. There needs to be like a, a name, a d- documentation driven development or something, right? Yeah. The, I, I found that as you know, over the time, as I've tried to write documentation, it tells you what's broken in your system. When you get to like, you know, the second page of explaining how something very simple works, you're like, no one's ever going to understand this. Like, and you, you start as an engineer going like, well, I could rewrite this in about 30 minutes and it's going to take me about four hours to document it. So mm, I'm going to rewrite it. <laughs> yeah. It's actually really frustrating to write documentation as an engineer because like you kind of got to focus on just getting the documentation done, but then you'll find all these things that you actually want to go and fix. Yeah. No, I, I imagine it'd just be full of to-dos the, as you write the docs. What's a launch, an open source launch like at Facebook? I did, does the marketing team get involved or do you just flip a bit and email your friends? It depends on which project. I mean, the way like we had a lot of things ready because we already had the coding on GitHub. We already had the processes and the, and the mechanics of how you, you interact with the code base, how you do pull requests and all that. Some projects go through the process of trying to move from an internal repository to GitHub, switching tools, switching the way people do things and think about doing things. So we didn't have to go through any of that. So for us, it was just everything that David was talking about, of cleaning things up, making sure that the experience was smooth. We built a website. And then it was just clicking the button on, on GitHub and saying it's open now. And then, of course, like there was a, a conference at the... At scale, data at scale conference back in, I think it was 2013 that uh, they held it for the first time. So we made a presentation there. We wrote a blog post and so on. But it was kind of a grassroots aside from that. It was we made it open and then some people saw it. They started engaging with the project and, and it kind of grew from there. I think you're leaving out part of the story, Martin. I mean, we've all been around for a long time. So we spent a lot of time going and talking to everyone else we knew around us. So we talked to all of our friends, went and talked to their companies, figured out if this was something that was going to work for them, try to get people to be engaged in the project. So we went and like personally recruited companies like Airbnb and Netflix and LinkedIn and kind of all these companies to get them involved in the early days of the project because we wanted to like bootstrap the actual having a real community. So it didn't just turn out to just be like five people at Facebook hacking away. 
And we actually had these companies beta test the software so that when we did launch, the problems that they had found had been fixed. And so like the first time experience of people wasn't like the first time anyone had ever used it externally. Yeah, because Facebook's environment is really custom and doesn't really reflect like what a lot of like normal companies would have, like the number of servers. I mean, Hadoop is forked and Hive is forked and kind of everything is forked. So like you want to make sure it worked in like real environments that actually worked in cloud environments and things like that. Any surprises as you bring in all these new use cases, new needs, new people, or maybe a testament to your planning or at least Facebook's diversity of use cases that the product more or less was what you needed? Well, I think that one of the things that was a bit surprising, <clears throat> I mean, when we wrote, uh, wrote the first versions, there were a couple of things that we wanted to do. One was make it open source, but we also had to make it work with internal Facebook infrastructure. At that point, Facebook was running a custom version of Hive. It wasn't like, even though Hive came from, from Facebook and, and was open source, eventually Facebook forked it back in. in. Uh, so they had customizations, they had their own version of HDFS, and there were a bunch of other systems that we need to be able to integrate for uh, all the monitoring and, and collecting metrics and all that stuff. So we said, okay, we need to make sure that Presto works for Facebook, but we also want to make it open source. So how do we do that? And we came up with this idea of separating the... And we, we kind of realized at some point that we could separate the engine, the core query execution engine from the storage layer, and we put it behind a plugin interface. And... That was kind of out of necessity. It was like, oh, well, we need to be able to have Presto run on top of Facebook Hive and HDFS, but also work with open source Hive and HDFS. So we did that by having plugins that could be swapped out. <clears throat> so that was kind of the motivation for that. But very quickly after that, especially after we open source, we started seeing people using that for integrating with other backends, like with databases and other systems. That was something that we didn't really plan ahead of time, but it became one of the pillars of Presto. It's like one of the things that people look to when they, they think about Presto and, and they think about using Presto. It's the ability to connect to different data sources, bring all the data from these sources together and, and run queries across all the data sources at the same time. And I imagine at some point there's more than just the, the group here on the call. Are you able to hire folks at Facebook or do you find a bunch of contributions from outside? Who else is building Presto at this time? Our team was four people for the first year. Then we got a couple more people. We were at six or seven people for about two years and a half or so. And then the, the team started growing after that. I mean, in terms of people that worked on the core of Presto at Facebook, it was always a small set of people. There were there were a lot of projects related to Presto, and we had to get more people involved at, at that level. But then, outside of outside of Facebook, there were many companies that got involved uh, from the beginning. Like, for example, there's a company called Treasure Data. They eventually got acquired by Arm a couple of years ago. They were one of the first contributors. They took the code. And then within a week, we already started seeing contributions from them, and they've been involved since. And then over the years, we've seen a lot of companies. Some companies came and went, like in terms of being involved and contributing, but there are some companies that have been contributing since then. I mean, we have companies like Netflix and LinkedIn, Qball, Treasure Data. All those companies are involved in the project and contributing to these days. And, and, and then over the last year and a half, 
we've seen a lot of new companies start showing up in the community. Like for example, Salesforce, they started using Presto recently, I mean, that we know of, and, and they are super involved and heavily involved in the, in the community now, making a bunch of contributions around security and, and improvements on that area. Let's talk a, a bit about governance. It sounds like from the beginning, you plan on this being open source and you lay the foundation to be ready to share code and collaborate. But other projects went to the Apache Foundation. Sometimes Facebook kept projects kind of self-governed. How did you as a group reason about governance and where'd you end up? So I have a lot of experience working in different open source projects. From the beginning, we had a model that was very much modeled after the early days of Apache. I call it the pre-PMC days, where we literally had a policy of like, there are no private lists. Everything gets talked about in public. You strive for consensus. If you can't reach consensus, you figure out what you can agree on and you move forward. And that's actually the core of the way the projects run to this day is, hey, everyone get together and work together as much as possible. And where you disagree, like figure out where you can move forward. And I think that works really well for like, I'll say smaller projects. You know, if you have less than 20 people working on stuff all the time, I'm not talking about like, I'm talking about people like working together all the time, not people who should like show up, put in a few contributions and leave. Like, you know, the core people, everyone can know each other. They build a relationship and that works really well. And that's pretty much how we've led it since. One of the things that we do believe in is that it's a community made of individuals that are passionate about open source, passionate about making something that will stand the test of time, basically. And they can do something that other people can use and can be successful with. So this is not about companies being involved in the project. Of course, companies are employed, people are involved in the project, but this is about people that are really passionate about working in an open source project. And, and as such, it's a project that is based on merit. Like if you get involved in the project, you get to know the people, you get to work with the people. And you, you, you build trust with the people and, and then uh, you'll be able to influence it more. One of the things we work really hard on is to make sure that no one's treated special. That's really frustrating to new people that show up and there's no reason for it. It's, you know, if I show up and have an idea, like, yes, people know who I am. It comes with a bit of credibility. But if people disagree with me, like... I'm actually obligated to work out the disagreements. Like I don't just get to put my code in and like I lose arguments all the time <laughs> around like what's going to go in. And it's not the most efficient way to run a project, but I think it leads to a really healthy community in the long run. That's great to hear. And you mentioned some pillar companies, Treasure Data and others. Do you feel like this is still kind of a Facebook project or is it as much kind of a community run project at this point? No, at this point, is clearly a community-run project. I mean, if you look at contributions over the last few years, they come from a very diverse set of people that, I mean, it is true that, I mean, today, some of them work at Starburst because we end up joining Starburst as some of the biggest contributors, but there are people from many, many companies that are involved these days and they're active every day on the project. So the ideas... The direction of the project, it comes from a group of people that work for different companies. I would say that the sign that I look at is that 
there are a ton of things going on in Presto that like I don't understand and like I'm not following and they're moving along just happily and you know self-managing and it's like to me that's like the big sign is like when you're not involved in everything actually the point where you're like hey Martin what the heck is project x and like he's like oh you know that's something from this other group of people and they're interested in moving presto in this other direction it's like wow that's really cool yeah, yeah Mar- martin points to the 50 printed out sheets on the wall and it's like oh that's over on this one <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the future where do you go from here uh i mean both on a personal level you've worked together for a long time maybe you know someone's excited to try something new or as a project you've now built this thing to last do you continue to spend time on it and, w- and where do you see the project headed I mean, I plan to keep working on Presto for, I don't know, another 10, 20 years. I mean, there's, there's, we started eight years ago, but uh, I mean, if you think about it, it's still scratching the surface in, in terms of what Presto is capable of doing and what we need to do over the next uh, few years. So, I mean, I, it's something that I feel very, very passionate about. So I have no plans on doing anything else. Yeah, I, I'm the same way. Like, I can literally go and look and be like, I got five years of work at least that I can lay out myself. And even with lots of people helping, like there's still tons and tons of stuff to be implemented and new things to work on and new features to be putting into the system. I think it's super useful today, but there's like so much more possible. Yeah, this is a type of project that like we look at Postgres as the inspiration. Like Postgres started in the 80s. It became a SQL system in the 90s. And like it's still an active use and active development today. You say like we want Presto to have like the same kind of history. Yeah, that's awesome. Anything we haven't covered that we should cover? Any good stories we're missing, Martin, David? <laughs> I mean, there are a couple of stories when the, the first six months of, of Presto. If you if we want to talk about that, uh, we could we could throw them in if we missed them. Let's do it. Okay. So I, as I was saying earlier, we started Presto in August 2012 took us six months to go to production. In those six months, we ended up writing, rewriting the, uh, the code three times. I mean, we wrote something, we realized, oh, this is, this is not the right way. We threw it out and, and, and started again. We, we looked at a bunch of literature at the time, a bunch of research papers. But I mean, if you look at research papers, they, they always tell you part of the story is like, okay, you have some idea for inspiration, but if you try to copy them or do exactly what they say, you always have... Things that are missing. So it was a it was a learning experience at at, uh, at the time, and we, we had never built a database before or a, or a query engine before. We had experience with distributed systems, with languages, etc., but we never had put all those pieces together. So it was it was like it took us some time to kind of get going with that. Anyway, so before we went to production, we and we were trying out different versions. In one of the meetings with our manager, we we went to show him what we had done so far. So we had Presto running on one rack of machines. It's a single cluster. It was like, I don't know, maybe 20 nodes or 30 nodes or something like that. So we said, okay, let's do a quick demo. So we loaded some data. We showed him a couple of queries. It was super fast. It came back within a few seconds, queries that would take, I don't know, half an hour or something. So we finished our, our meeting and we went back to our desk to, to continue working. And we wanted to log into to the Presto cluster and we couldn't log in. It's like, we couldn't even ping the machines. Like something happened with the cluster. So we're like, what's going on? So we ended up talking to a bunch of people in the networking team. And at some point, uh, someone told us, oh, 
you you own that cluster. Yeah, we had to shut it down. Uh, it caused a brownout on the on the network that affected ads and uh, delivery and, and a bunch of other problems. So it's like, wow, <laughs> it's like we run a, we run a simple query and, and we cause a, a brownout across uh, across the, the Facebook infrastructure. So what happened was Presto was so fast, it was able to pull data across the network faster than. Than the computers could process it at the time. It was a, basically a, a shift in how the systems at Facebook worked at the time. Like Hadoop was very inefficient, so we could never saturate the network because it would be CPU bound. Presto, on the other hand, was able to saturate the network with the available CPU. And what ended up happening is that because of the architecture of the network at the time, we ended up hitting some edge cases of how the network operated and end up causing that brownout. So that was an interesting and eye-opening experience. And of course, we had to adjust the way we deployed Presto to avoid that kind of, of problem. And then over time, the, the network architecture at Facebook evolved to not have that problem at all. I was dealing with the network not being fast enough for the next six years. I mean, I was we were working on new network architecture when I left Facebook because Presto is the single biggest user of network or can use more network than everything else at Facebook. And that just comes from very careful design of the system to be really efficient at computation. And the thing you learn is like, oh, when you make one thing more efficient, something else is going to be the problem. It's a pretty big eye-opening thing for us. Yeah, I'm sure it says something about your efficiency and also the network safeguards within Facebook for noisy neighbor workloads. Uh, Absolutely. The design of the network in those days was extremely bad. That was like before they started to roll out their fabric networks. (laughs) It was super bad. (laughs) Actually, one more item for that last story is, so an interesting thing I, I found while working at Facebook on those systems was that you can work on making your code more efficient. But at some point, it doesn't matter anymore because... What was actually happening was that as I made the system more efficient, I just idled more and more and more CPU. And since I'm paying for the machines anyways, like I'm actually just to have them powered on, I'm actually wasting money because I'm spending my time on the wrong problems. So there actually is this interesting point you reach where for the architecture you have, you can reach a maximum efficiency. It's like, I need to process data and the data is as compressed as possible, and I get it to the system, and then I processed it as efficiently as possible. And anything beyond that is actually just a waste of effort, which is like, I, I had never thought of that as being a software engineer. When your burn down list just becomes unimportant anymore. It's like, I, it doesn't matter if I fix these bugs. Yeah, yeah. If I make it 10% more efficient, then I have 10% more CPU sitting there idle. So I'm going to go work on doing something else. So it's a really interesting problem. And we saw that you, you run into that in other places. Like if you make your uh, file compression better, well, now you have more data to process. So you, you end up needing more CPU. Or if you uh, get rid of cold data on your disk, now the data that's remaining is more hot. So if you are actually limited on like how fast you can read the working set of data from the disk, well... The cold data actually isn't doing anything for you at all, so it actually doesn't matter. So when you get rid of it and you put more hot data on there, you've just created a problem for yourself. Yeah, you become I.O. bound instead of disk bandwidth bound. 
and we, we found this like, I don't know, every other year we'd run into a different version of the same story. Great. Let's, let me ask you uh, as kind of a final question, if you have anything you want to tell the community, you know, if somebody's just hearing about Presto either for the first time or they're interested in the project but never quite been involved, is there a place for them and how do they find that place or anything other recommendation you give new, new users to Presto? Yeah, certainly. So we have a, a website, prestosql.io. So that's the, you can get documentation, you can see, you can download the software. There are links to different resources, like, for example, how to get involved if you want to develop Presto on Presto, or if you want to join the, we have a Slack for the project. There are uh, links to join join there. And and if you are, if you want to get involved, like Slack is a perfect place to be because that's where we have almost 2,500 people involved right now. It's about 300, 400 people active every week. So it's a very, very active channel. So if you have questions, if you're running Preston, you have questions, you can certainly get help from the community there. If you want to get involved and looking for things to contribute, that's that's also a good place to ask. Uh, and you will get guidance from all the all the people that are developing and, and can help you out getting your bearings. And Presto is a worldwide phenomenon. So there's someone on Slack 24 hours a day because there's people all over the world who work on Presto. So wherever you are, there's other Presto people probably at least in your same country, if not in the same city as you. And they're all there on Slack. That's wonderful. And Martin, Dane, David, thank you for joining us today and all your input here. One moral for the story is that the next job interview I have, I'm going to you know, who know, I may be working with that person for the next decade. <laughs> you never know. And also, um, you got to be nice to your coworkers because you, you might be with them for a decade. It sounds like we could probably do this show again in ten years, and and you 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 all plan to be doing the same thing on the same project <laughs> with the same people. I hope so. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Find today's show notes and past episodes at contributor.fyi. Until next time, I'm Eric Anderson, and this has been Contributor. <laughs>